Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific series. As in Voice of Fintech podcast so far, here you will hear inspirational stories of entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, investors, ecosystem hub leaders from or close to the world of fintech. Asia Pacific series will be hosted by amazing hosts based in the region, speaking to the leaders from Asia Pacific. Here is another one hosted by Angela. Hi and welcome to the Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific podcast. I'm Angela Conroy, CEO and co-founder of Natarum and your host for today. With us today, we have Mark Xu, a Taiwanese-American entrepreneur and investor based in Taiwan. His operating businesses span education, e-commerce and professional services. While he has set up two venture capital funds focused on early stage investments in Taiwan. Over the last decade, Mark has invested in over 30 companies. Mark has also founded numerous education companies and is a thought leader in the realm of international education and education technology. Hi, Mark, and welcome to the show. Hi, Angela. Thank you for having me. So, Mark, after growing up in the US, you decided to relocate back to Taiwan um, after receiving your BS in biological sciences from Stanford. What was it that drew you back to life in Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, a generation ago, if you will. Um, this was uh, 1996, and of course... Back then, there was no China, no India, you know, pre-BRIC. So, um, you know, having grown up in the suburbs of uh, California, coming to Taiwan or visiting Taiwan during my summers in in college, uh, I found found the opportunities to be immense, right? So keep in mind, this was kind of mid-90s. Um, the growing economies were the tiger economies. So it was really about uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, Korea, Singapore. So that was the era that I grew up in. And so that was the context. So, you know, coming uh, from America where like uh, back then Taiwan's uh, GDP growth rate was like 8% a year for, for I think 30 years straight. So I, I found it to be very, very exciting. So that that's how I really landed in, in Taiwan back in uh, 1996. Wow, that is some really impressive, uh, some growth rates there. And I definitely think Taiwan, you know, hasn't slowed down. I, I still think Taiwan is in general one of the most interesting places to watch in Southeast Asia, not just because of the, I guess, the political climate's really interesting, but the natural beauty is really interesting as well. But I think the tech scene is particularly interesting. Sure, sure. Perhaps if you could talk us through a little bit about the tech scene and who are some of the biggest players and what do you think is creating some of the buzz? Yeah, I mean, I think Taiwan has always been, um, you know, very strong in manufacturing. So like just kind of um, going back in time, kind of showing kind of just in my lifetime. Right. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I was born in the uh, early 70s, um, you know, came of age, you know, I would say in the 80s. And so when I was growing up, you know, Taiwan was uh, kind of butt of many jokes, especially out stateside, you know, like uh, it was making lots of toys. And then and then sometimes, you know, the toys <laughs> didn't work. So, you know, the joke was it was made in Taiwan. So it, back then, you know, when I first realized how Taiwan was perceived in, I would say, the early 80s, it was more, you know, it was a cheap place to make, uh, you know, simple toy electronics. And of course, Taiwan made the transition, I would say, in the mid to late 80s into higher end uh, technology. So um, I think what really what really enabled Taiwan to kind of shed its image of like a, a shoddy manufacturer of uh, toys 
was this transition really um, to uh, PCs, um, semiconductors, and uh, you know mobile devices, right? So today, I think Taiwan. Um, when you look at Taiwan, you know it's a country about you know a little bit uh, smaller than Australia, twenty three and a half million people. But you know, I, I kind of look at financial data. So um, you know, from a market cap perspective, uh, Taiwan right now is you know about a little bit over two trillion U.S. dollars in market cap. And then I, I just actually did a news run last week. So there are about 250 companies, almost exclusively in tech, that have a market cap of over a billion dollars. So I would say that Taiwan is a leader in uh, semiconductors, in um, IC chip design, and then uh, in manufacturing. And among the top companies, I would say that is obviously, I think these days would be TSMC, the leading um, kind of chip maker in the world. So TSMC um, now is like a $550 billion company uh, market cap. In terms of kind of contract manufacturing, it is Foxconn or Honghai. So they're the, the main contractor or one of the main contractors for, um, you know, all sorts of IT kind of products. Most notable is, of course, Apple. So they're sitting at $200 billion. U.S. dollars per per year. Yeah, there's some pretty sizable companies there, and I guess you know, have, on the back of having companies of that scale and that quality there, it really does breed you know this this sense of quality throughout the entire ecosystem. And I know you and I have been chatting before about I guess the engineering talent that you have in Taiwan as well is now really coming through to that that forefront. Maybe chat through us a little bit about how that's taking shape in Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, I think you know Taiwan is has been known for um, for hardware. Um, so I think one conversation that we had was that um, I, I believe now, you know, uh, um, outside of the U.S., Google has uh, its second largest uh, sort of uh, presence is in Taiwan. And mostly, um, you know, it's making hardware here. So one is Google acquired from HTC, which is a handset maker. Um, it's Pixel division, right? So HTC was previously making the Pixel phone on behalf of Google, and then Google just acquired the unit. So uh, rumor has it that they have 4,000 people in, in Taiwan just on, on Pixel, the, the handset. And then also uh, Google acquired Nest. Now I believe it's called Google Home. And so that um, a, a very large presence is uh, also in Taiwan with, with that division. And then less excellent nest, yeah, the eye in the sky, hey? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then lesser known, um, of course, is I think it's like a legacy tech company, Dell. I don't know if you if it's part of your generation, but um, you know, Dell was yeah, yeah, Dell was my yeah. first computer. <laughs> the first computer I ever bought was a Dell, and the and the last Dell I ever bought was was that one as well, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so Dell has a pretty sizable um, also presence here. I believe it's it's now considers uh, Taiwan as its age. Asia Pack um, HQ. You know, there, there's you know many many tech companies on the software side. You know, Yahoo's always had a very large presence in Taiwan. I think you know around maybe fifteen to eighteen hundred employees in Taiwan. And then again, if you go further down, like um, perhaps what I call tier two companies, um, U.S. companies. There's this one called Digital River, which back then, you know, in my era, was an Internet 1.0 company. Um, but they remain. They continue to have pretty sizable uh, kind of presence in, in Taiwan. Okay. And for these, these software companies that mm -hmm. continue to maintain this kind of presence after they've done these acquisitions, what do you think it is that keeps them in Taiwan? I think it's um, a, a term that we often use here in Taiwan. It's called cost performance. Um, so obviously, um, you know, Taiwan has, is home to, you know, many excellent technical schools or engineering schools. And then unfortunately for the Taiwanese, I would say that, you know, 
salary has largely remained stagnant um, over a good part of the last decade, decade, uh, you know, a decade and a half. Although in, uh, I, I would say in the last few years, um, salaries have begun to pick up in line with, um, you know, what's happening globally. But I think uh, for for these companies, I think it's the access to um, technical talent, you know, a very, very strong work ethic. And I, I would say for the most part, a, a very business-friendly environment. Very helpful um, market conditions there for a company looking to enter the market in Taiwan, which is actually one of the things that you yourself help with. What are some of the key challenges that you see for a company looking to enter Taiwan as a market? And how do you overcome some of these challenges? Right. I think the um, most difficult thing, I, and I went through this myself, is obviously um, I think the opportunity is greatest if you're coming from, you know, obviously like a, a rich or a developed nation, right? And that tends to be I think the English speaking countries, perhaps Western Europe. But then when you come to Taiwan, as you first, you know, when you first land in Asia, you know, unlike Singapore, which use, you know, uses English as the primary medium, I think one is definitely language, right? So I think um, different from Singapore or Hong Kong, I think, um, and, and more akin to, I think, Japan and Korea, English is not enough. And so therefore, everything is, um, is, is in Mandarin. The second aspect, uh, aside from language, I think it's culture. So um, one thing that I often kind of sums up the mindset is, I, I think, in the West, we're accustomed to the idea that we're innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> but when yeah. it comes to business, when it comes to the regulatory framework, I think here they assume that you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Fundamental difference there. Yeah, there's a very different mindset, right? And and that's something that it takes a while for someone, I think, from the West to wrap their heads around. Uh, the best example is that the issue of how do you like recognize expenses in accounting, and this is what trips up everybody um, when they first come to Taiwan, right? So like I, I would say in most kind of Western jurisdictions, you could just say, oh, this is an expense. Um, you, you know, just have someone acknowledge that. But I, um, in Taiwan, for something to be recognized as an official expense, you need to get your counterpart to uh, issue you an official receipt, and which means you know, entering the tax ID number, right? And so, um, you know, if you come for business meetings, what you you will find most interesting is at the end of a, let's say, a lunch meeting, <laughs> you know, then someone needs to dig out this eight number digit and ask the restaurant to kind of uh, enter it uh, so that they could claim it, um, you know, as an official expense. Right. So this is this whole notion of you're kind of guilty until you're proven wow. innocent. Right. Um, so I think that's yeah, that that's, you know, really what trips people up. That would be a culture shock, particularly coming from some industries like, you know, oil and gas or particularly the um, investment management industry, I think, as well, where they're known for their kind of long lunches. Um, right, right. <laughs> quite, a, quite a culture shock there. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Well, in terms of the market entry yourself, where have you seen kind of successes in the forms of companies entering into the Taiwanese market? And I guess kind of which sort of industries do you see as really being um, accepting of, you know, outsiders coming in into the Taiwanese market? I mean, I think in general, um, you know, on paper, Taiwan's very open. So I think if you've been out in Southeast Asia, you'll understand that, um, for example, in many places in Southeast Asia, you know, your you're, um, foreigners are not allowed 100% ownership of um, an enterprise, you have to enter into some sort of joint venture. In Taiwan, you know, a foreigner can own, whether it's an individual or a company, can own 100% of a Taiwanese company and does not require a local partner 
So in that sense, you know, technically it's very, very open, mm -hmm. right? But the hard part of it, of course, is, is navigating one, the regulatory environment. And I think the other is just kind of the cultural and the language aspect of things. And that's finding a happy medium in that that's usually the challenge. Um, but, you know, of course, um, you know, that can be done and the, you know, there's a reason why Taiwan works with, you know, all these uh, kind of global partners, be it Apple, HP, Dell, whatnot, right? Because Taiwan is a great place to manufacture. So I think obviously with these MNCs, you know, they have, you know, a plethora of uh, service providers that they can go to. Our practice is more focused on, you know, the, um, the SME, the small, medium-sized kind of foreign company or that emerging entrepreneur. I think, you know, what makes the most sense uh, for Taiwan, without a doubt, it's still, you know, some sort of tech manufacturing. And, and I think people who are actually physically making some sort of product, be it like a hardware product or let's say uh, electric bicycle, they recognize, you know, Taiwan's um, kind of strength and advantages. So I would say that these types of companies where they're making some sort of, um, you know, physical product, they perhaps are already familiar with, with Taiwan and have the best natural fit with Taiwan. More relevant for on the startup side would perhaps be like 3D printing. Um, so um, a lot of 3D pe uh, manufacturer or, or, you know, people trying to come up with innovative uh, applications to 3D printing, yeah, you know, they're, I, I've, I've met a, uh, a few that they're trying to get the 3D printer uh, manufactured in, in Taiwan. Interesting. Okay. So I think these types of, yeah, these types of companies make the most sense. Yeah. There's quite a broad spectrum there of, of companies that would, you know, could do, could do really good business in, in Taiwan. The notion of what is Taiwan, I think itself is actually a really interesting one as well, because many curious Olympics observers at the moment, my, myself included, mm -hmm. have been watching and Taiwan is competing under an interesting name and an interesting flag. Perhaps you could talk us a little bit about um, this situation and kind of a little bit of background and how this is playing out in the day-to-day -day business life of the Taiwanese. Right now, Taiwan, you know, is very excited uh, about the Olympics because I think this is the kind of best performing Olympics. You're doing really well. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, you know, um, they have always uh, competed under Chinese Taipei as opposed to Taiwan. It's, a, it's you know, kind of a long story, but long story short really is uh, what happened is, you know, post-World uh, War II, the KMT, the Kuomintang, lost China. And so the CCP came into power in, in China. Uh, the KMT then fled to Taiwan and then um, established its base uh, in Taiwan. So then for the longest time in, a, in the Cold War era, there were two Chinas, right? The uh, People's Republic of China, which is uh, present-day mainland China, and the ROC, the Republic of China. So for the longest time, post-War War II to 1972, I believe, the international community recognized China as the government in Taiwan, the ROC. And then I think it's going back a bit in history, you know, Kissinger makes a trip to China under the Nixon administration and agrees to switch the recognition of China from the ROC to uh, PRC. And then from a Taiwan perspective, the official end of relationships uh, was 1979, which was when the U.S. left Taiwan and also switched its recognition of China to the PRC as opposed to the ROC. So um, the, I, I guess the consensus global view is that there's only one China, 
and then there is Taiwan, and the consensus view is then that Taiwan is a renegade province from China, and hence, you know, when we look at official recognition, I think Taiwan is maybe at nineteen or twenty countries um, that recognizes Taiwan, um, and then the rest of the world rec recognizes uh, China as China, right? So. Officially, there. I think in diplomatic circles, there is no no Taiwan. It's it's really um, everybody is still operating under this paradigm of there's one China. It's whether PRC is the official representative or whether the ROC is the representative. And so, hence, for a country, it needs to be a mutually exclusive decision whether they recognize Taiwan or they recognize China. So anyway, that's the the political background. Bit complicated. Yeah, it's a really fascinating situation, and I think the international media kind of makes us think that China and and Taiwan are kind of sitting on the mainland China and Taiwan are kind of sitting on this, you know, tinderbox the entire time. But from you know from a boots on the ground perspective, that's not necessarily the case. Right, right. I mean, like I said, you know, this dates back to the end of World War Two. You know, through the Cold War, always been, you know, there there actually has has been physical conflict on the outlying islands, but. I think most recently, obviously, I think there has been kind of stepped up saber rattling on the part of of China, right? But I guess for people who you know have been in Taiwan <laughs> for generations, the the rhetoric has evolved, but still there is unresolved political issue at hand um, that remains、uh, a fact. But in terms of everyday day to day life, I think in terms of top of mind right now, you know. I think most Taiwanese are, you know, following the Olympics more so than, you know, what China has said, you know, yesterday or the the the, the day before, right? So,、um, you know, life goes on, and you know,、um, the reality is that Taiwan is an amazing place to do business, and、right. I think you yourself, in terms of your investor journey, have had a really interesting ride there as well. I know you started investing. Over ten years ago, into the ecosystem when it was really just finding its feet.、Mm -hmm. Maybe talk to us a little bit about、um, your investor journey and you know what what got you into this industry in the first place. I think my interest has always been、um, you know in entrepreneurship. When I was in college, and this is really dating myself, you know, I was part of Internet 1.0、uh, back in in Silicon Valley. So this is like mid mid nineties, you know,、um, when Yahoo kind of pre pre Google, <laughs> Yahoo, eBay, that that era. Came out to Taiwan, you know, thinking that you know I like to replicate a, a bit of Silicon Valley in Taiwan.、Uh, long story short, was realized way too early, way too early,、uh, and so I focused then on my、uh, businesses. You know, I called them small businesses, and and then finally got to a point where I thought, you know, I still would like. By that time, you know, fast forward this now from 1996 to 2010. Back in 2010 was what I think people were calling it Web 2.0. Or Internet 2.0, and then by that time I was in my late 30s, and I thought, okay, rather than trying to do a startup myself, I thought, why not、um, parlay some of my experiences、um, and savings into investing in others, and then see if this if the timing is correct this time. And so, so I really started kind of my second career, I would say, as a as an investor around 2010, and then still, you know, was. A bit early. The startup ecosystem was very, very nascent, and it was not only in Taiwan. It was actually throughout the region. You know, I remember going out to Singapore 
in 2011. And still, you know, people were talking about whether, you know, we could even ever replicate something like Silicon Valley out in Singapore. And I remember being on stage and, you know, kind of having this, this debate, right? And so you fast forward another 10 years to now, and I think it's great that the, the entire region, especially I think Southeast Asia now is on, on the global investors radar. And if you, ask, you had asked me, you know, 10 years ago, um, could I have imagined such a kind of vibrant startup ecosystem around the region? I would definitely would not have believed that we've come, could come, you know, this quickly, this far, this quickly. So that, that, that's been my investor journey. And of course, you know, like, um, for, for Taiwan, I, you know, um, I, I wish it would move at a faster pace, you know, especially, um, seeing what's happening in, in Singapore, but to be fair, it has, it has also come a long way in the last, last 10 years. And I think a lot of that is to pioneers such as yourself that, you know, put capital into the market in the early days and have really started to create some of those markets for founders to come through. One way that you've done this, I guess, is through creating different funds. And I'd like to talk a bit about your fund, GD1, which was a public-private, um, I guess, partnership to a certain extent where you had a couple of different governments involved in the fund. Maybe talk us through a little bit about that. And I guess I'm interested to hear about your your thoughts on how public and private partnerships work to kind of shape the future of innovation and tech in general. Just to clarify, the fund itself, it's still private, you know, we're the GPs, the government. So, so the background to GD1 was really the two governments, Taiwan and New Zealand came together in um, around, you know, early 2010s. Um, So our fund formally launched in 2015. And the fund came about because the two governments agreed that they would try to jumpstart their collective uh, private equity, PE, VC industries. And so um, there was a sort of a budget earmarked specifically for Taiwan, New Zealand kind of joint ventures or GP partners. So we were fortunate. We were one of two funds on the Taiwan side to qualify for government uh, support. And so uh, the the Taiwan and New Zealand governments um, became 40%. They were the 40% LP base for, for our fund. And of course, the mandate being, you know, to support the Taiwan and New Zealand companies. So we're very fortunate to be part of that. The, the idea of a public-private um, partnership, uh, at least coming from a North American perspective, you know, like the U.S. government doesn't really get involved, let's say, in investments out in Silicon Valley. But I think it, it does make sense. And I think, you know, Singapore is even a better example of how literally the government, you know, kind of created this startup um, euphoria and ecosystem, right? So I think, of course, you know, having been a beneficiary of this program here in Taiwan, I think it is necessary when you identify sort of, uh, you know, an opening or or, or if you not opening is probably not the right word, but if you um, identify something that you want, let's say your market to to value, which in the context of Taiwan's like innovation to get aware away from a pure kind of hardware capital intensive kind of industry and you want to give outlets to people who are, uh, you know, creative, like a knowledge base economy, but you see that there's a lack of private investment from the, uh, from the private sector. So I think in, in times like those, I think a public private initiative makes a lot of sense, right? Because someone needs to jump first. Right now, I think Taiwan is um, kind of following footsteps of many governments. So in addition to equity funding via funds, now it also does direct investment. It also provides grants, right? And, and I think, um, you know, in the past 10 years, we're beginning to see this across Asia. 
because I think governments are recognizing that um, sometimes you can't wait for the private sector. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's good to see, I think, you know, as many people as possible trying to boost this this industry and, and look at innovation in, in a really sort of clear, forward-looking manner. When it comes to the future of work, where do you kind of, I guess, see yourself heading and see Taiwan and see the tech industry in general heading? What do you kind of think we can see on the on the outlook over the next kind of 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, I think without a doubt, I think, you know, the future of work, um, especially because the world went through this pandemic, we're still, you know, trying to emerge from it. I mean, I think it's really kind of altered and forced us to rethink where we work, where we can source talent. And from my point of view, I really think that great opportunity, because I think as we emerge from the post-pandemic world, you realize that, you know, you can do a lot, you know, uh, remotely, right? And I think Taiwan has been a beneficiary of this from early 2002, I think May of this year, Taiwan basically had zero community transmissions. And so as a result of this, a lot of um, what we call Silicon Valley refugees came, came to, came to Taiwan. And then when they were here, they probably discovered, you know, there's an argument to base your, your startup uh, here in Taiwan, right? Like I said, you know, uh, salary levels uh, are inexpensive, especially when you compare them to U.S. levels. I think the quality of life is very, very high, especially if you're coming from the U.S., a large city where, you know, there are, there are just neighborhoods that you don't go to. I mean, Taiwan, kind of like Singapore and Japan, you know, has in essence, no violent crime. So, you know, people were, uh, at least in the conversations I had with people from the States, they were just uh, impressed with the, you know, the the safety, the infrastructure, the ease of just kind of getting around, right? So I, I'm confident, not only Taiwan, but just any any place in the world where you have talent pools and where you have good infrastructure, I think will really benefit from a post-pandemic world. I think you're absolutely right, Mark, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how Taiwan, um, you know, comes out of this pandemic, hopefully as strong as they've been throughout most of the uh, the day. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Mark. That's all we have time for today. But I uh, wanted to say a big thank you for being on the show. And as a recap, that was Mark, internet entrepreneur, education entrepreneur, and all-round nice guy. So thank you very much, Mark, and enjoy the rest of your holiday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.